Hi again, and welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast. Before we start today, I'd like to take a moment to let you know that you can now find your favorite podcast about Scandinavian history on Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. You can, of course, also get your episodes from the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. On the Facebook page, I also regularly post all kinds of extra material somehow related to Scandinavian history. You really should check it out. Anyway, last time we saw how a string of Frankish kings with questionable nicknames handled an ever-increasing amount of Viking attacks. In the year 911, King Charles the Simple made a deal with the Scandinavians under the leadership of a man known internationally as Rollo, but who's identified as Walking Rolf in Scandinavia due to the fact that he was too big to ride a horse. Rollo was given a large chunk of King Charles' land and some bits that the king actually didn't fully control. In return, Rollo just had to become a Christian and defend Francia against any further Viking attacks. The land of the Northmen, or Normandy as we know it today, eventually became a strong political entity, where the Frankish kings only had nominal control. In 1066, Rollo's descendant, William, crossed the English Channel and captured England, making himself king and earning the nickname William the Conqueror. Today, we'll talk about the largest and longest-lasting Scandinavian settlement project during the Viking Age, or in recorded history for that matter. I refer, of course, to the settlement of Iceland. For the longest time, this piece of dry-ish land in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean that we call Iceland was one of the largest islands still uninhabited by humans. It was also the last bit of European real estate to be settled. Episode 10, A Land of Ice. Much of what we know about the discovery and settlement of Iceland comes from two medieval sources, the Landnámabók and the Íslendingabók. Landnámabók, literally land grab book, but more conventionally translated as Book of Settlements, is a medieval Icelandic tome describing in quite some detail the way Iceland was settled and especially who settled where in the 9th and 10th centuries. The book's divided into five parts and over 100 chapters. The first part tells of how the island was found. The later parts count settlers systematically going around the island clockwise, starting in the west. Landnámabók lists 435 men as the initial settlers, the majority of them settling in the northern and southwestern parts of the island. All in all, over 3,000 people and 1,400 settlements are described. It tells where each person settled, and it provides a brief genealogy. Sometimes, short anecdotes about the settlers are also included. The book records important events and documents family history of those original settlers into the 11th century. It remains an invaluable source on both the history and genealogy of the Icelandic people, and to podcasts about Scandinavian history. In its rich details, it's seductively trustworthy with regards to the earliest years of Scandinavian settlement in Iceland. But there are problems, as Killjoy historians are quick to point out. The very first copy has not survived, for instance. The oldest surviving copies were made in the second half of the 13th century, or even a little later. 
since we don't have any of the original, or at least really old copies, we don't even know when the first version was written down. It's tricky to evaluate exactly how reliable of a source the Landnama book actually is. Also, the authorship remains a mystery. Some readers have suggested a single author, while others believe it to be a compilation put together by several people, maybe even over several generations. In the case of the Eastlendinga book, Book of Icelanders, we at least have a clear idea of who penned it and when it was done. The book was written in the early 12th century by an Icelandic priest called Ari Thorgilson, who was a descendant of Kettle Flatnose. The Islandiga book is a historical work dealing with the early history of Iceland, from the settlement to the islanders' uh, Christianization. By modern standards, it might not be the most trustworthy of sources, since Thorgilson was forced to rely heavily on oral sources when writing the book. But he was refreshingly mindful of the different values of different sources and mentioned several of them by name in his text. Thorgilson also steered clear of supernatural episodes and overtly Christian bias in his quest to describe the past as accurately as possible. In the 17th century, another priest, this time a guy called Jon Erlandsson from Viltingaholt, made a copy of the Islendinga book. Then he made another copy, not for chits and giggles, but because Bishop Brunolfur Sveinsson, who had tasked him with making a copy in the first place, wasn't happy with the first one. For his copies, Jan Erlandsson used an original that is presumed to have been written in the early 13th century. I say presume because it has been lost, unclear when and where, but it can't have been too long after Jan Erlandsson copied it, because when the Icelandic Danish scholar and collector of ancient Scandinavian manuscript Arne Magnusson came looking for it just a few years later, it was nowhere to be found. Both Landnama book and Islendinga book have their issues in terms of reliability, but they are the best sources we have when seeking knowledge about the first centuries of life in Iceland. Besides, they're probably not completely fictitious, and taking into account that countless generations of Icelanders, and other Scandinavians too for that matter, have treated the stories these book re books relate as the unquestionable truth, we have good reason to relate those stories, even though it might be worthwhile to have a grain of salt handy from time to time. So let's take it from the beginning. How was Iceland discovered? Actually, it happened by mistake. According to Landnamba book, the first Scandinavian to discover Iceland was called Nadod. He was actually on his way from his home in Norway to the Faroe Islands, but he got lost and missed his target. Instead, he continued on westward until he reached the east coast of Iceland. Nadod landed close to the modern-day Icelandic town of Reidarfjörður, and he stepped ashore and climbed a mountain looking for signs of life, such as smoke from a fireplace. He saw nothing, no sign of human habitation whatsoever. As he came down the mountain, it started to snow, so Nadod called this new land he had discovered Snæland, or Snowland. But Nadod decided to abandon this new place and try to reach the Faroe Islands after all which had also been discovered relatively recently. In fact, Nadod is considered one of the first settlers of the Faroe Islands. Nadod eventually successfully made it back to the Faroe Islands, and he told people about this empty, snowy land that he had discovered to the west. The next Scandinavian to reach Iceland 
actually also did so due to a navigational mistake. This time, it was a guy called Garthar Svavarsson, a Swede, who was married to a woman from the Hebrides. Sometime in the 860s, his father-in-law died, and Garthar Svavarsson set out to claim his wife's inheritance. But on the way to the Hebrides, he sailed into a storm and was thrown off course. So far of course, in fact, that he eventually ended up in Iceland instead of the Hebrides. Garthar Svavarsson circumnavigated the place and realized that it was in fact an island. He called it Gardarsolmi, or Garthar's Islet, after himself. Unlike Nadod, Garthar Svavarsson didn't immediately leave the place after naming it. Instead, he spent a winter on the northern coast in a place he called Husavik, which means House Bay, because he and his crew erected houses in the bay. Today you can still find a village called Husavik on the northern coast of Iceland, and it's one of the best places to go whale watching when you're visiting the island. After having survived a winter in Iceland, Gardar was anxious to continue on to the Hebrides in the spring. But one of his crewmen, a character known as Natfari, decided that he wanted to stay behind in this new land. So as Garthar prepared to set off to sea again, Natfari, accompanied by two slaves, a man and a woman, snuck away and managed to stay behind. Natfari established a settlement known as Natfaravik, located across the bay from Husavik. Natfari may not have discovered Iceland, but he is considered the first true resident of the place. As usual, the slaves don't count. At the same time as Natfari and his two slaves were trying to eke out a living on the island they still called Kartarsolmi, Kartarsvavarsol himself returned home and praised this new land that he had found. But however much he praised it, he never went back. Instead, he lived out his life and eventually died in Scandinavia. But his son Uni actually did go to the island his father had named after himself. Uni didn't just want to emigrate to this new colony, he wanted to rule over the land his father had kind of discovered, so he suggested that he'd conquer it in the name of the king of Norway, who in turn would then make Uni Jarl of Iceland once he had taken control over it. Unsurprisingly, the king of Norway thought this was a splendid idea and sent him on his conquering way. Equally unsurprisingly, however, the settlers in Iceland weren't interested in becoming subjects of the Norwegian king or in having Uni as their Jarl, they solved the problem by simply killing Uni, the would-be Jarl. Before he died though, Uni had time to procreate. He had a son called Roar, a man of some importance in Iceland. He was a Gothi, and what that means exactly is something we'll discuss in more detail next time. For now, we can say that he was a kind of a chieftain. Roar does not seem to have been a very pleasant fellow, and he was eventually killed, only to be, to be avenged by his son. As you can see, the descendants of Garthar Svavarsson were a quarrelsome bunch, who stirred up much more than their fair share of trouble over the generations. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. By now, Iceland has been discovered and named twice by two Scandinavians who reached the island while trying to go somewhere else. The first Scandinavian credited to have reached Iceland on purpose was a guy called Floki Vilgertarsson, who lived in western Norway. When he heard of Garthar Svavarsson's adventures, he decided that he wanted to find this Garthar Holmi and check it out for himself. We don't know for sure what year he set out, but it was most likely sometime in the late 860s or thereabout. With him on his expedition were his wife Gro and their children. 
First, the family sailed to the Shetland Islands, where tragedy struck and one of Loki's and Gross' daughters drowned. Then they sailed on to the Faroe Islands, where another daughter got married. In the Faroe Islands, Floki is said to have caught three ravens and brought them with him on his journey across the uncharted ocean. In an episode that sounds suspiciously much like a copy of the Noah and the Doves tale from the Bible, Floki is said to have released these ravens one after the other. The first flew straight back to the Faroe Islands. The second refused to leave the ship, but the third flew away in, in a northwestern direction and never returned. Floki concluded that this was the correct course to reach Gardarsolmi, and thanks to this trick, he was given the nickname Rafna Floki, or Raven Floki. Unlike Nadod and Gardar, Floki didn't step ashore on the east coast, closest to Scandinavia. Instead, he continued to sail around the island, and as the ship passed the Reykjanes Peninsula at the southwestern tip of the island, they sailed into a wide bay where they finally landed. One of his crewmen, a guy called Faxi, noted that they had found a great land. Perhaps not the wittiest of remarks, but he was nonetheless rewarded with the honor of naming the bay, which is still called Faxi Bay. When winter descended upon them, Floki and his crew weren't properly prepared. They spent that bitterly cold winter in the west fjords in the northwest of Iceland. At one point, Floki hiked up the highest mountain in the vicinity, and from there he spotted a bay full of drift ice. This sight of frozen seawater made such an impression on him that he called the bay Isafjordr, or Ice Bay, and the whole island Iceland. When summer eventually arrived, Floki was surprised by how pleasant it was. He didn't think that a place that could be so harsh in the winter could be so green and lush in the summer. Remember, Floki was from western Norway, where the Gulf Stream warms the Atlantic Ocean just enough to make sure that both the winters and summers are neither really cold nor really warm, just mostly grey and rainy. At this point, Floki realized that the island he had now renamed Iceland was probably inhabitable, but he still decided that he wanted to go home to Norway. When he returned, he told everyone who would care to listen that Iceland was basically worthless and he wouldn't recommend settling there. Despite this, Floki did later return to Iceland and actually spent the rest of his life there. According to tradition, and tradition rests heavily on Landnamabuk, the first permanent settlement of Iceland kicked off in the beginning of the 870s. Landnamabuk is very detailed in its description of these early years of settlement, but as noted previously, it was written at least 200 years after the event it describes, so that inevitably puts a dent in its reliability. We'll get back to that dent in a bit, but first let's see what tradition and Landnamabuk would have us believed happened when Iceland was populated. So, according to tradition and Landnamabuk, the Age of Settlement started in earnest with the arrival of a Norwegian chieftain answering to the name of Ingolfur Arnarsson. He showed up just a few years, possibly four, after Gadar Svavarsson discovered that Iceland was an island. Arnarsson got himself involved in a blood feud back home in Norway and decided it would be a good idea to relocate for a while, possibly forever. So, he brought his family, including his wife, Hatlveig Frodadottir, and his stepbrother, Jörleifur Rothmarsson. 
as well as a small group of settlers with him to this newly discovered island in the middle of the ocean. When Ingolfur was close enough to Iceland that he could see land, he took the two carved high-seat pillars from his hall back in Norway and tossed them into the sea, proclaiming that the gods would guide them to where they should establish their new home. Unfortunately, the crew then lost track of the pillars, and it would take three whole years before Ingolfur's slaves eventually found them washed up on the beach in a bay where mist billowed out over the water from a nearby hot spring. Ingolfur proclaimed that this was where he'd set up shop, and called the place Reykjavik, or Smoke Bay, after the exotic natural phenomenon. Ingolfur also claimed a large part of southwestern Iceland for himself, which made his family rich and powerful. His son, Thorstein Ingolfsson, would eventually become a major chieftain in his own right, and is supposed to have founded one of the first things, or assemblies, in Iceland. We'll talk more about the political system in Iceland next time. According to a Landnama book, Ingolfur Arnason established Reykjavik in the year 874, and archaeological findings actually back up the existence of a settlement in this location in the 870s. Many centuries later, Reykjavik would become the capital of Iceland, and today roughly half of the country's inhabitants live there, more if you count metropolitan Reykjavik. And on the city's coat of arms, you can see a depiction of Ingolfur Arnarsson's high seat pillars. But not all of the original members of Ingolfur's expedition would live to see the establishment of Reykjavik. While people were looking for the pillars, Ingolfur's stepbrother, Jörleifur Rodmarsson, had himself killed by two of his Irish slaves who were sick of the way he was mistreating them. The slaves then ran away, but Ingolfur set out to catch and punish them for what they had done. He tracked them down to a group of small islands just off the southern coast of Iceland. There he hunted them down and killed one of them, but the other chose to die a free man and killed himself by jumping off a high cliff into the sea. Since then, these islands are known as Vestmanaeyjar, or Westman Islands. Westman referring to people coming from Ireland, an island to the west of Scandinavia. Since Ireland was a rich source of slaves, Westman was also a synonym for slaves in Viking Age Scandinavia. During the decades following Ingolfur Arnarsson's arrival, a quick and relatively well-documented settlement of the whole island, or at least the inhabitable bits of it, took place. People settled in the lowlands in the southwestern corner, far from glaciers and active volcanoes, and along the northern coast with its relatively sheltered valleys and fjords where agriculture also was possible. The highland center of the island remained uninhabited and remains so to this day. Some settlers claimed land that was still up for grabs, whereas others bought lands from earlier settlers. Some were lucky enough to receive land as a gift or inheritance, and others, finally, took land by force from settlers who couldn't defend their property. But it doesn't seem like land was rented during this early period. Sometimes settlers gifted part of the land they had claimed for themselves to newly arrived settlers. At first glance, this might sound counterintuitive, but there could be benefits to giving up land you didn't have the manpower to make use of anyway. That way, you would have neighbors, grateful neighbors, to call on if you needed help with something. For instance, if some thug showed up and tried to take your land away from you. So, who were the people who settled Iceland? Well, 
Land na mabuk and Islandinga book naturally focus on Scandinavian immigration, primarily from Norway, but also from Scandinavian settlements in the British Isles and other places in Europe. But we know that they brought with them large numbers of slaves, and many of these slaves were of Celtic or Anglo-Saxon origins. In later years, there have been some genetic studies carried out on the Icelandic population, a population that was relatively isolated and saw limited immigration from the end of the Viking Age until the 20th century. These studies have shown that as much as 72% of Icelanders have matrilineal ancestry from Scotland and Ireland, whereas 75% of the patrilineal ancestry stems from Scandinavia. This is interesting since it suggests that Scandinavian men brought with them Celtic women, some as wives of Hiberno-Norse settlers, and some as slaves, and that their descendants later assimilated into the Scandinavian culture in Iceland, much like the Scandinavians did in the British Isles. And similar to the way Scandinavians left their linguistic mark on the British Isles, we find later generations of Icelanders with names like Njal, Brjan and Kormakr. These are not Scandinavian names, but rather corruptions of the Gaelic names Neil, Brian and Cormac. There are also the odd place name with which indicates Irish cultural influence, such as Patricksfjörður or Patricksfjord, a village in the West Fjords, possibly named after St. Patrick himself. So, why did people move to Iceland? As usual, when explaining migration, there were so-called push and pull factors. A push factor is something that drives migrants away from where they were living previously, whereas a pull factor is something that attracts migrants to a particular place. For all those Celtic slaves, the pull factor is obvious. They were pulled to Iceland by their owners, possibly literally and probably against their will. But what motivated Scandinavians and other free men and women to move to this newly discovered land in the middle of nowhere? Well, historians like to point to both push and pull factors as explanations. The first one is the push factor, and that was uh, the changing political situation in Norway. The Icelandic sources like to point to the rise of Harald Fairhair as a push factor that triggered a widespread exodus from Norway to Iceland. This explanation first appears in the Islendinga book, which describes the settlers as Norwegians who were unhappy with Harald's rule and taxation, or who had to escape his wrath for one reason or the other, perhaps for challenging his right to taxation, who knows. In terms of the timeline, the rise of Harald Fairhair is well synced with the settlement of Iceland. In the year 866, Harald started to conquer one petty kingdom after another in Norway, and in 872, after definitive victory in the sea battle at Hafrsfjord near Stavanger, Harald declared himself king over all of Norway. According to the sagas, people unhappy with Harald Fairhair's rule then left to settle in the Shetland and Orkney Islands, as well as in Iceland, to get away from the taxes and harassment of King Harald. This explanation was widely accepted until the second half of the 20th century, but today historians tend to downplay the role of the unification of Norway when explaining the settlement of Iceland. Instead, the focus on the political threat from Norway in the sagas might actually be a reflection of the political climate at the time when the sagas were written, when later generations of Norwegian kings did what they could to dominate Iceland. In terms of the pull factor, 
It's important to keep in mind that not only was it becoming increasingly difficult to conquer land in other places, like the British Isles, but also that the previously unclaimed land in Iceland that was up for grabs wasn't all too shabby. Iceland in those days was quite different from Iceland of today, and the land and opportunities that the island could offer were actually pretty attractive to 9th and early 10th century Scandinavians. Connections with the rest of the world were lively, and Icelandic traders had things to offer foreign markets. Norway was the first port of call for almost any Icelander going east, but they ventured farther afield, both as merchants, raiders and mercenaries, all through the Viking Age. The climate was warmer, and Iceland was still rich in various resources, such as animals for hunting and fishing, walrus ivory and forests. Yes, you heard me correctly, there were still forests in Iceland in the 9th century. When the first Scandinavians arrived in Iceland, much of the lowlands were covered with low woods, similar to what you can find today in the foothills of the Scandinavian mountains. The settlers also brought livestock, so soon life in Iceland was quite similar to that of the Faroe Islands, for instance. People had sheep, goats, cows and horses. The sheep were the most important, and they gave wool needed to stay warm. The settlers also farmed some of the land if they could, but even in the Viking Age, when the climate was relatively warm, the barley only just managed to ripen in the relatively short Icelandic summer. Putting all your trust in agriculture was a recipe for disaster, so mostly rich people with land to spare grew crops. Life was okay for the early settlers, but Iceland still couldn't be described as some kind of Garden of Eden, brimming with unlimited abundance. And things would take a turn for the worse soon enough. Already within a few generations, the new settlers had more or less eradicated the forests. The trees grew slowly in the relatively cold climate, and the new inhabitants cut down too many trees too quickly for the forest to regenerate. They needed wood for ships, houses and heating. Also, their grazing livestock led to erosion that hurt the chances of the trees to regain lost ground. For hundreds of years, forests remained only in isolated pockets here and there on the island. When Scandinavians arrived, approximately 25% of Iceland had been covered by forests, but already before the year 1000, the island was largely deforested, and only 5% of the original forests survived. At this point, it's probably high time to mention that even though Scandinavians eventually came to dominate the island demographically, culturally and politically, they were probably not the first people to reach it. Even Ari Thorgilsson pointed out in the Islandica book that when the Scandinavians arrived, they encountered people Ari called Papar, by which he probably referred to Irish monks who had come to this remote island for undisturbed religious contemplation. There were Papar living in the area around Stödvarfjöður on the east coast of Ireland, just a stone's throw to the south of Reidarfjöður, where Nadod, the first known Scandinavian to reach Iceland, first came ashore. Others lived in the southwest on the Reykjanes Peninsula. We know from Irish sources from the 9th century that some Irish hermit monks were in the habit of settling in remote islands in the Shetland and Orkney Islands, so it doesn't seem impossible that some of them made it all the way to Iceland. But they didn't last on the island. In Islandinga book, Ari Thorgilsson added that these papar soon left since they weren't too keen on the new Scandinavian arrivals and their pagan ways. Interestingly, Landnama book also mentions them, but 
is more ambiguous as to whether they were still around when the Scandinavians arrived. Instead, the book describes how the first Scandinavian settlers came across Irish books, bells and even croziers, but doesn't mention any meetings between monks and Vikings in Iceland. We also have archaeological evidence indicating that these so-called papar existed. Carbon dating from the Reykjanes site shows that it was abandoned somewhere between 770 and 880, which means that the papar either were no longer there when the Scandinavians showed up, or packed up and left pretty soon after they got company, just like Ari Thorgilson claims. To complicate things even further, recent archaeological findings on the Icelandic east coast, in the very same area where Nadod landed, may upend everything we thought we knew about the timeline for the settlement of Iceland. Near Stödvarfjörður, archaeologists have found an impressive longhouse that they think belonged to a rich and powerful chieftain. The finds from the site include Roman and Middle Eastern coins, as well as various beads and silver objects. They've dated the building to approximately 874, and that would fit pretty well with the traditional narrative that we've outlined so, so far. What makes this particular archaeological dig not only interesting, but potentially revolutionary, is the fact that the archaeologists were stunned to find out that the splendid longhouse from the 870s was erected on top of an older structure. The older house hasn't been properly excavated yet, but archaeologists estimate that it can date back as far as the year 800, a generation before Nadod, Gardar, Floki and Ingolfur made their way across the Atlantic. If that turns out to be true, the early history of Iceland might have to be rewritten. Maybe the island was used as a seasonal hunting ground long before it was permanently settled. Or maybe the Irish presence was more extensive than previously thought. Who knows? Hopefully, we'll know more soon. Whenever the island was first settled, a few decades after Ingolfur Arnarsson found his high seat pillars washed up on the shores and founded Reykjavik, the arable land in Iceland was all divided up. There was no more unclaimed land up for grabs for new arrivals. In Islandiga book, Ari Thorgilson claims that the country had been fully settled by the year 930. Landnama book gives a similar figure, claiming that it took about 60 years from Ingolfur Arnarsson's appearance until the island was full. Based on the sources, the year 930 is therefore taken to mark the end of the settlement period. But the reason this particular year is chosen as the definitive endpoint of the Age of Settlement might have less to do with the supply of arable land and more to do with the fact that this was also the year that the Althing, or the General Assembly, was established, ushering in the Age of the Icelandic Commonwealth. That event was of momentous importance for the new settlers, and we'll go into all the details about the Althing and the way the Icelandic Commonwealth was organized next time. Landnama book mentions 1,500 farms and other place names at the end of the settlement period. It also mentions more than 3,500 people who inhabited the island at that point in time. Based on this, scholars have tried to estimate how large the Icelandic population might have been in the year 930, but it's notoriously difficult. The estimates also vary greatly, from 4,300 to 24,000 depending on how many slaves and other unmentioned family members, farmhands and general hangers-on the different scholars believe each settler brought with him. 
Not all of the hundreds of farms mentioned in Landnama book were of equal size. Approximately 400 were large households with substantial landholdings, but the majority were considerably more modest. The first settlers, especially rich and powerful persons who had brought large retinues with them, had the resources to claim large swaths of land for themselves and their families. Later immigrants had to settle for smaller plots or to cultivate land belonging to the large landowners, and thus became dependent on them. This way, an elite group of powerful chieftains and important families and clans were established in Iceland. Here we see the beginning of the stratification of Icelandic society that we'll have reason to return to in future episodes, starting next time. And next time, we'll look at how the Icelanders started to organize politically, setting up the Icelandic Commonwealth, with its legal and political center at the Althing. This was supposed to be a society of free men where no one would have to bend their knee to any king. But we'll also see how the uneven distribution of land and other resources threatened this vision of Scandinavian proto-democracy from the very beginning. I hope you'll join me then.